Hang on. Hang on. Halt. Welcome to This Might Be A Podcast, the song-by-song podcast about the greatest band of all time, They Might Be Giants. I am your host, Greg Simpson, and I am here with Bruce Triggs, author of Accordion Revolution, A People's History of the Accordion, and uh, host of Accordion Noir radio show. And we're going to talk about the song, The Day, off of They Might Be Giants' self-titled debut. Here we go. Go. The day Marvin Gaye and Phillips got married, the trees all waved their giant arms, and happiness bled from every street corner, and by planes bombed. With Bruce, hey. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to have you on here as a uh what seems like the the premier accordion um, promoter researcher of North America is what it seems like to me from from all I've read about you. Well, yeah, it's kind of the the <laughs> if we've got the 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 world of accordion related podcasts, the the Venn diagram of of the many many accordion related podcasts out there 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 is an overlap i think between yours and ours but uh but <laughs> yeah i'd say so you know i you know i wish uh there were more they might be giant songs with the accordion they, they they're getting fewer and farther between on their newer albums but we did know. a uh we did a series actually of we haven't played a lot of weird al on our sh- on our radio show over the years. We haven't played a lot of They Might Be Giants on our show over the years. How dare you? Yes. And, um, <laughs> well, as you say, they, they haven't got that many accordion songs, really. Um, and uh, we, when we started our show, people asked us whether we would have enough uh, material to, to maintain a show for any length of time. And that was now 16 years ago. Um, And, and our, our play this on the next show file keeps growing and growing and growing. And now I, I think it's at about three months worth of hour long shows is kind of the choice 
play this on the next show is now three months of our long shows long. So we, we could maintain the entire 24 hours a day show for three months. <laughs> um, so anyways, it, nice. it, there's no scarcity of accordion, good accordion music out there. So and, what uh, year was it that uh, the show, that your radio show started? We got on the air in 2006 and um, have been on the air weekly since then. And this is on for terrestrial radio, right? So yes. You're in Vancouver. It's on um, 100.5 CFRO. Co-op radio in Vancouver, yeah. And yeah. it's a little cooperative that is a radio station started in the 1870s by a bunch of hippies. Yes. <laughs> and uh, as one does, and uh, is maintained as one of the bastions of hippie culture in what is no longer a hippie capital, is now a real estate speculation mm. capital of okay. of North America and the most expensive city to live in in North America. Um, where, where, yeah, Vancouver is kind of like the most expensive place to live with the highest rents combined with abject poverty because we have the most expensive mm. rents. So mm. our neighborhood mm. has has 3,000 homeless people and the highest rents. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's how a society should work, right? Indeed. <laughs> you know. So let's take care of each other, you know. Kind of relates, I guess, to tonight's song in a way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I did a quick search here on uh, I don't know if you've ever been on the TMBW, uh, this might be a wiki, uh, yes. fan wiki. I did a quick search here for uh, accordion and for tags, songs that feature the accordion. Um, we've got 130 pages here. Now, that's not yeah. exactly 130 songs because some are tagged twice if there's like an official live release. So like right. off this album, 32 Footsteps, uh, there's a page for 32 Footsteps and uh, 32 Footsteps uh, live version off of the first album live. Um, but I think it's safe to say there are over a hundred. They might be giant songs with accordion. So I think you should maybe, you know, slot some more TMBG time in your uh, radio show. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> I did a nice, really nice interview with John, um, which was, we had a great conversation. It was very interesting talking with him about his accordion playing and his style, um, which is quite unique. I'd never, uh, really um looked at that um in a way when we started our show it it was um kind of a reaction against the the i'm i'm like a nonconformist. so when i got into accordion it was sort of we're not going to play those typical we're not going to play polkas we're not going to just play weird right. out we're going to look at you know weird and we're going to play punk rock we're going to play avant-garde whatever mm -hmm. and sure. um so when we ended up i've got like twenty thousand accordion songs on my hard drive and um so things kind of rolled around and we end up with much more variety than than one i think uh, so what year was this that you talked to john Linnell? Oh, that is a good question. I could check if you want the details because I can look it up. Yeah, here. sure. Or or ballpark. 
2018. They did a show here, and so I interviewed him. Yeah, or their gig here. Um, Very nice. Yeah, and the I like fun tour. Right. Cool. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, you teased us there. You said you know about his accordion playing style. He said, oh, it was interesting. And then kind of we went right. in another direction. I, I need to know details here. Well, he has a unique um, and unusual, I guess it's self-taught style where he, um, you know, he plays the piano accordion and the piano accordion uh, has a melody the piano on the right hand side and the left hand side of many most accordions has um, bass notes kind of up on the close to the bellows side and then it has chord chord buttons kind of closer to your hand and his style most people with the bass and chords they kind of alternate they play bass notes and then they play chords and you can mm-hmm. play complex combinations of those and then they play melodies on the right hand side on the piano and what he has developed to do is uh, instead of using those chord buttons and the bass and then to play melodies on the right hand side um, what he has developed is he plays complicated more complicated chords on the right hand side because he's a piano player on the piano side yep so he plays the more complicated chords on the right-hand side, and then he plays more bass notes, so yeah. like melody lines on the right-hand side, or on the left-hand on the bass nights. So presumably he just sort of ignores the chord buttons more <laughs> or less, which is, you know, the chord yeah, buttons are more complicated and, and uh, you know... Th- that's that's a strategy to get around <laughs> the fact that what the heck are all those buttons there yeah, for? Yeah, I think that's intimidating to a lot of people. Like when I first started playing the accordion, the, the first accordion I was playing was my my late grandfather's uh, diatonic accordion, mm-hmm. uh, which only had eight bass keys, you know, and then the two rows of melodic keys between C and G. And so that one, I mean... You know, but for like the listeners, it's pretty easy to improvise and just mess around on something like that because if you stick to the row, you're staying in key, right? And you can just yeah. kind of mess around and, uh, you know, pretend to shred a little bit. And then uh, when I finally got myself a piano accordion, about, and how long is that ago now? I don't know, maybe <laughs> 12. 13, 14 years ago at this point, I took accordion lessons because I was like, okay, uh, all right, I can look up, okay, I can look at a chart in a book or online, okay, these are what the bass buttons are, but still, I'm, man, I am in over my head here, so I took lessons for a few years, I played in an accordion ensemble with a handful of other accordionists, and learned my way around that a little bit, I still would say I'm, I'm fairly amateurish at the, uh, bass keys but i at least know how they work and uh yeah how to how to get around them in um reasonable chord change <laughs> patterns mm-hmm. you know any big jumps and it's uh it's tough because i think a lot of people don't realize that you can't 
really see the bass keys when you're wearing the accordion, especially if you're standing up. Um, yeah. You know, you can see the piano side okay, but yeah, seeing the bass key side is is tough. But yeah, that's that's interesting uh, about Linnell there, though. I mean, you can tell he's playing a lot more chords, and I mean, lots of times he'll have like a thumb down on the piano side while he's doing something on top of it, so he's kind of doing more things, more than one thing at a time with just his right hand. Yeah, and then kind of adding, you know, bass accents and stuff on the left hand. That's 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 interesting. That's so awesome you got to talk to him. John has a peculiar accordion style. I, and, I think maybe um, it's not so peculiar as far as self-taught accordionists go. I don't know. What would you what would you think of that? Cuz just Well, you know. I I would say uh I would say it is a very peculiar accordion style for a world-famous accordionist. No, yeah. Mhm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think there's anybody else who's made it as big <laughs> you know as a rock and roll accordion star who plays like that hmm, yeah who you could who people look up to as oh yeah an accordionist i want to be an accordionist i want to play accordion songs just like like uh, they might be giants right and then you know if somebody like aspires to be an accordionist and they go and they like take lessons and they want to play like they might be giants and then they try and play like that is not <laughs> how you learn to play accordion <laughs> not usually yeah i mean really weird l would be someone to look towards more as traditionally a trained he can get around the bass keys man weird l is is an accordion player um i interviewed weird l uh this past year which was quite fun um, and, uh, I would like to talk to him again. I, I thought of some questions for him about his relationship with Polka. So I hope to talk to him again sometime this year or sometime. I would like to write an article or something about his relationship with traditional Polka. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, John and, 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 uh, his accordion style is kind of an intriguing, element of of uh kind of what he does with the accordion yeah, yeah and we will get into the accordion on this song uh shortly um back to you though real quick so accordion noir uh you started throwing festivals right is this uh did i see 2008 was the first one yeah yeah it's, uh 2007 2008 it started pretty quick my co-host rowan lipkowitz he um much more than I. I sort of set up chairs is my <laughs> role at the festival. <laughs> you know, go do this. You know, um, I volunteer at the festival and do some publicity. I think I made the first poster. Um, and uh, so I do some promotional work and such. Um, but basically other people do all the organizing and have done all the work. Catherine Peterson did uh, organizing of some of the largest of the festivals, bringing people internationally and such. Yeah. What kind um, of, uh, yeah. I mean, what kind of crowd are you drawing for something like that? The largest festivals we were getting, I don't even know the numbers. So I tend to just make things up <laughs> when people ask me questions millions. like that. So it's really bad. Yeah. Millions, thousands. <laughs> thousands um is the right number okay. um 
what exactly the numbers yeah like i would say three thousand wow would be about the right number that's impressive something like that's that impressive. you know depending upon the year we, we did probably the years that Catherine did the festival definitely the years Catherine did the festivals were sort of the biggest most kind of compact solid years where we had guests coming internationally we had folks come from finland and france and um where did some of our other we had folks come from new york um and basically we had international guests come for for some of those three years that i believe she did the festival um and we were sort of gearing up to get some nonprofit status and all these kinds of things. And then what happens in a situation like that is you, you either are able to build up large enough where you get lots of grants and then you can pay your staff or you don't. And, and, it's that balancing act where either you you get lots of grants and then you pay your staff or you can't get grants because you're trying to pay your staff, you know, <laughs> and, and you can't there. get grants to pay your staff and, you know, yeah. Huh. So it's it's hard to get grants to pay the staff and, yeah. So. And COVID has really thrown a wrench into live everything. Have you been able to have a festival recently, like last year? Or We had very DIY uh, festivals. We had some virtual things. It's actually easier to get international things when everything's virtual. You can get people from anywhere, and you just have things online. Uh, All right. And... Uh, and uh, but it's hard to, you know, pay people for doing virtual things and people, you know, just come on their computers. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's hard to take a ticket for somebody just turning a computer. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. So anyways, yeah, we've had virtual festivals and people came and, and did some things in some local parks um, it's such like that, but it's been very DIY yeah. local bands and local artists mm -hmm. just kind of showing up. Sure. Um, so it's not been nearly as big as when Catherine was doing, she was basically doing it as a volunteer. And the situation here in Vancouver is we've got kind of New York rents and kind of Milwaukee level incomes. <sighs> is the situation in Vancouver because we, we don't have like Amazon paying, paying wages uh, or anybody paying wages mm. at the Amazon kind of level in Vancouver. Mm. The only thing anybody makes money on here is real estate speculation. So it's kind of this uh, inflated yeah. this economic situation. It's really bad. Huh. So we can... We're we're at the uh, stage in the uh, party in in uh, Vancouver where everybody goes to the kind of trendy party and talks about trendy things, and then at some point everyone starts talking about real estate. It's a really boring part of the trendy party. Sounds incredibly boring. So yeah, 
that's we just did that so let's not do that anymore yeah. uh nuts to that <laughs> okay and then in uh yeah. 2019 Art, music oh yeah real estate yeah no uh-huh. no, no stop okay and then 2019 yeah. uh you uh published a book called accordion <laughs> revolution a people's history of the accordion in north america from the industrial revolution to rock and roll and uh i would highly recommend this book to anybody hey you can get it on uh your kindle for 10 bucks folks 20 bucks on uh paperback and uh, speaking of amazon um i'm sure there's other probably cooler places you can get it but uh tell me about that process because this seems just like just just like uh, exhaustively researched it's just i mean it's very comprehensive history of the accordion i especially enjoy a lot of the the figures uh the photos and figures of like early pre-accordion and early accordion type instruments and some of those earliest uh you know popular players but tell me a little bit about that uh the process of uh writing the book yeah i basically um I remember my daughter, she was uh, about eight, and we went to the library, and um, she, I asked, well, what do you want to get from the library? And she said, I want to get a book on the history of the accordion, because she was taking accordion lessons. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, but I haven't finished writing it yet, because <laughs> there weren't any books on the history of the accordion. You couldn't really get any. And... Uh, I basically I wanted to read the book on the history of the accordion and there weren't the book. So um it's not a book for kids unfortunately. I would like to have that book for my 8-year-old daughter. Maybe that's a project I should be working yeah. on. Uh, it, it's but it is the book that I wanted to read. Basically, it traces the history and tells all the stories that I thought were fun. As I went through, I basically gathered stories and sort of would would pick and choose as I was reading and researching um, any story that, that kind of grabbed me. I would be like, oh, yeah, that's good. That's funny. That's that's interesting. That's going in the yeah. book. You know, if if it was um, – if if it was good enough that it had sort of like two lines and a, and a kicker, then it was good enough to go in the book. <laughs> you know, if if there was a paragraph and and enough, you know, if it was a story that was three guys crossed the border and made an illegal recording in order to break the ban on making recordings, and they crossed the border and they told the border guys. <laughs> Uh, that they only had two dollars worth of magnetic tape. That's all they had of value. <laughs> then that that was going in the book. That that was enough that I could make that into a paragraph. <laughs> sure, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it, so, it, it touches on a lot of areas that that I wasn't familiar with at all. I mean, areas like like. Uh, Stuff that people normally wouldn't associate with the accordion. I mean, like accordions in jazz music, for example. Like most people would not mm-hmm. put those two things together. Um, how uh, I mean, how how long did it take you to write this thing? I mean, how long of a project was this? I spent about ten years yeah. on it. Um, it was not a very fast project. I was telling people earlier today that I 
probably needed a co-writer or at least an editor or something. I got much faster towards the end when I hired some people to help me uh, polish it up at the mm-hmm. end. Well, I basically hired copy editors and right. and uh, text editors and you know I, I hired proofreaders and and uh, the people who helped me um, publish the book. Um, and they had things like deadlines, <laughs> and then the the process speeded up a lot <laughs> yeah. at that point. So I probably should have hired some people to just like poke me with sticks earlier right. on in the process, and it would have been much faster. <laughs> so I want to do an audio book now, uh-huh. and I should probably hire some people now to just do that, you know, get with a microphone or something and just poke mm-hmm. me. Yeah. periodically <laughs> some kind of I could hire somebody for just like 10 minutes a week to just come in and poke me with a stick yeah it's funny when you got projects uh, like that going on yeah you'll realize like a couple of weeks gone by and you're like oh shit like for me it's like an album or something it's like oh damn it i haven't done anything on it this week like and then it's gonna take forever if i'm only doing this much on it like yeah once a month or something i mean come on yeah right so it it took me 10 years but but uh, a, a lot of that was not very efficient 10 years. So um, I think uh, it, it did take a lot of research, though. Um, yeah. And some of the writing is, you know, some people sit and they write. They, they, writers talk about being able to write, oh, I did 75,000 words today. <laughs> and some of my writing was more like, well, I did a really good paragraph. <laughs> And then I, you know, I researched and I read, you know, all this stuff. And then I did a really good footnote. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 10 years seems pretty reasonable. I mean, it's nearly a 400-page book. There's, I mean, it's very comprehensive. And I just, I recently uh, produced and I just got two orders on my Etsy shop. I'm quite excited every time I get them. I've produced uh, a annotated edition when i put the book together it's all um there's footnotes for almost everything when the book came out it's 400 pages and it's pretty substantial um, but uh, invisible to the casual reader there's actually uh, annotations to almost every paragraph um, and i knew that but i didn't want to include that because it would be boring um, and it would make the book, you know, too heavy and who wants to read all that? Um, but I wanted it to be available for researchers and for anybody in the future coming along, seeing all that would be maybe helpful so that yeah. somebody might want to see that. So I have a digital version of the book that I made available just for free. That's a big PDF file mm-hmm. that has like 2,000 footnotes that are available. Dang. So there's 2,000 little tiny notes that go from one to 2,000. Mm. <laughs> you don't, mm. don't see that in the books where you see just like <laughs> note number 2,000 yep. um, on there. Um, but that's available. And I have, um, I don't think I have one right here in front of me, but they're funny. Um, I have little accordion-shaped USB drives. <laughs> they're little little rubber USB drives um, that you know stick into if you have an old USB 
thing on your computer or somewhere. Um, and uh, the uh, the PDF fits onto this uh, USB drive. And I sell those on my Etsy shop. And uh, it's available, the PDF is available for free from my Accordion Revolution uh, website. And but, can people find your Etsy? I'm, assert, I'm assuming it's called Accordion Noir. Would that be correct? Uh, it's Accordion <laughs> Revolution is okay. the name of my the the website where you can get all my book stuff. All right. Um, but my my Etsy shop is linked from there, um, okay. and uh, you can get the the annotated edition of my book there, which has all the footnotes anyone could ever want. But if yeah, if if people want to know where the story of the guys busting over the Mexican border in order <laughs> to make illegal recordings came from, they can find all that because all the stories that I tell in the book I got from somewhere, and. Yeah. Uh, in books nowadays, you can see people are trying to think of kind of new ways to share um, the information. And occasionally you'll see people having like end notes or, or uh, you know, you'll see some footnotes and people are kind of struggling with the digital ways you can kind of well, you could have notes for everything. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is as I was writing, I had my, my book was on the digital format on my computer. And I realized one day that I had this little button on my writing program that I could make all the footnotes disappear when I printed it and reappear. And right. I could print it either way. Mm -hmm. And so at that point I realized, well, I could just print it print a version with all the footnotes and make that available to people who want it, you know, of which so far there have been, you know, like eight. You know, eight sure. People. You know, according to academics, no, I'm sure they're, they're few and far between, unfortunately. And, and, uh, so actually there, there've been more than that. I probably sold about, I don't know. I think I made 50 or I got about 50 of the little plastic USB drives because yeah. I thought they were really funny. I probably <laughs> sold about 30 of them. I'm not going to get nice. any more. So um, that's my limited edition. And then the thing is available for free for anybody who's researching. So more of them have gone out for that. But just uh, the, I thought that it was fun to get the the little plastic ones. Yeah, for, that sounds, that for, sounds cute. Uh, they were amusing to me. Yeah, let's. Uh, so let's move along to uh, Team BG. I, I want to know your your uh, your history with the band. Uh, when did you first become aware of They Might Be Giants? Well, I was in school. Uh, I am a Generation Xer, so I was in college and went to undergrad uh in i graduated in 1990 um from college and um so i remember seeing they might be giants record in the late 80s and um that was the the they weren't the first place where the accordion kind of registered with me as oh this is actually cool mm -hmm. but i was definitely aware that they were one of the bands where the accordion was there um that they, they weren't the one that was that kind of struck me as like this 
this is new and different. They were, they, along with Weird Al, some of the other ones, they were playing the accordion as that kind of ironic, um, they were playing the accordion as ironic, you know? I don't know about that. I, I think. Mm. Not, not like Weird Al. They were, uh, like, Weird Al plays the accordion as kind of a shtick thing. Yeah, maybe. And I have, I have a, I have a, like I said, I have an article or something to write about what Weird Al does with the accordion. And that's, <laughs> that's a separate thing. And, and John and the way he does the accordion is, is more nuanced and interesting, but it does come out of that kind of in the eighties, the accordion was, if you were kind of a hipster, you were playing the accordion as a kind of a weird, it was kind of cool, anti-cool right. to play the accordion, to be you know? different, yeah. Yeah. And um, there were people playing the accordion uh, and it was, it was like so uncool, it was cool right? kind of thing. Um and there was him, and there's a woman, uh, uh, Angel Corpus Christi. We just played her on our show this past week. Um, he mentioned, and I'd never heard of before, um, what's his name? Stu from, uh, we're on tape, so I can look it up. <laughs> um, Stu. Oh, yeah, it's the... Uh, the Negro Problem is the name of the band. Post Minstrel Syndrome is the huh. name of the uh, album. Interesting. They're from Los Angeles. And this guy, Stu, and um, their album is totally worth it. You should definitely get it. <laughs> wow, that sounds interesting. And this, uh, I'd love to interview the woman, the woman, um, Bill Minchie played electric accordion with them and they rock um <laughs> and um t- absolutely absolutely worth tracking them down With with T and B G, then in the early days, were you like picking up their records, or were you just kind of like, oh, 
you know, were you, were you a, a, a fan, uh, a convert no, right away? Or, uh, no? I, I was not really a, a fan. I remember hearing their stuff, um, you know, like friends of mine. It was just kind of, it was one of the bands that were around. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't a big fan. I just kind of knew their music, saw some of their, probably saw their videos. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah, their first video for "Put Your Hand Inside the Puppet Head," uh, Linnell. It, it features proudly a uh, Linnell with a gigantic accordion. I'm, I'm not sure what the make of it is, but it's it's huge. And as he's gotten, you know, up in age, his accordions have gotten smaller and smaller because <laughs> that, that thing looked heavy as hell. <laughs> yeah. And in the "Don't Let's Start" video, they uh, blow up an accordion. right yeah so so i I, um i guess as i uh when i kind of got the accordion bug or Mm -hmm. whatever the the entryway for me was not through kind of upbeat uh polka e uh, style music. The the entryway for me was through, um, initially was through um, some kind of uh, European art music stuff. Okay. Ah. I got music by this group, the Accordion Tribe, and um, there's a compilation, the uh, Planet Squeeze Box, hmm. uh, that. I have here somewhere this compilation right here. And that's from the 80s? And it's from the 90s. 90s, yeah. And that was kind of uh, that the Planet Squeeze Box anthology. Um, those were, yeah, like late 80s was uh, early 90s. I graduated college in the 1990, and that was around the time first heard accordion music that kind of registered in the kind of, oh, I was missing something. Mm. I heard a couple of accordion songs or an accordion solo, a reggae song that was suddenly like this new thing. Oh, that's totally unexpected. Yeah. Cool. And, um, and then I heard this anthology that had utterly unexpected music that was totally different than, well, it was, it was different than the upbeat ironic. It was different than polka. It was different than all this other stuff. And some of that difference was that it was, it was either like serious melodies or it was, you know, kind of African-influenced world music or it was some kind of tango thing going on. Um, And it was kind of like as far as it could get from what I had heard before, that was kind of the more interesting it was. Mm -hmm. So if it was either really noisy punk rock, uh, accordion amplified distorted noise, Mm It was some kind of classical music accordion way over here. 
as far as it could get, then that was what was appealing to me because of my sort of innate uh, nonconformity. Yeah. <laughs> I would and say they might be giants. They're very nonconforming band, though. I mean, not a lot of people would maybe call them punk outright, but they're definitely punk adjacent. Yeah. And uh, they do plenty of weird stuff that most of the normies don't get. You know, they just it's don't true. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And so the day is off of uh, their first album. And before that, even though it was on their 1985 demo tape, it was on their demo. It was on their demo. So I'm going to drop in uh, the audio for that right here. The demo, John Flansburg uh, singing the, the lead vocal there, is much more kind of, um, it's as much more kind of uh, out there vocal performance. He's really, you know, giving it a lot more oomph while as on the record proper, uh, he takes on more kind of like a bellowing kind of crooner voice i don't know what did what did you think of that um that demo performance as opposed to the uh uh the final studio mix it's i mean it's a demo so the, obviously the recording uh quality is a little more uh lo-fi uh, the, the the tempo's a little quicker and mm-hmm. it's more kind of standard flansburg vocal i would say uh, and then, you know, when they put it to record, they really kind of stretched it out and kind of, you know, hammed it up a little bit. Um, right. So I'd say the demo is probably more in kind of like their typical fashion. And then on um, the studio version, they uh, made it a little more dramatic. But I I don't hate the demo. I mean, I, I kind of like Flansburg's vocal performance in it. It's more kind of... Um, Lovingly obnoxious a little bit, like, yeah, you know, kind of growls into it. And there's even like some distortion on the tape towards the end. Yeah. As well. I like the, the, the fact that, um, they have so many versions available, I think is so, it's kind of like the Grateful Dead. Like they're so, uh, they are so giving to their fans of the amount of, of uh, material that they make available and have available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they in, these days, they are perfectly fine and even encouraging of people to bring recording devices to concerts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a there's a, a fan website, museumofidiots.com, which is after one of their, their songs, um, oh, that yeah. has hundreds and hundreds of... Mm. leg recordings i mean going all, all the way back to 87 
Wow. And even more being put on like fan groups and stuff on, on, on Facebook. It's uh, things like that. I think it's really interesting when, when there's, I mean, there's musicians and bands, whether, um, doing our show, uh, doing radio work, like, like we do, um, you encounter other bands and other fandoms that you're not sort of part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's interesting to encounter groups that you're not part of and the kind of feel for them. And you encounter different kinds. You encounter a band that you're not related to and they're jerks. And you encounter (laughs) other ones that are just super nice. And, you know, there's no way to really expect or to know from their music or from their impression or maybe from, you know, you saw a video of theirs when you were in high school that, oh, they're really nice. Um, and then you come across them you know, 10 or 20 years later and you find out that, you know, oh, the people from They Might Be Giants, they're super nice. <laughs> You know, now everybody finds out that Weird Al is super nice. Everybody says that Weird Al is really nice. (laughs) And everybody wants to work with him. And he's got the same band from 30, 40 years ago. And nobody has ever left his band, you know. (laughs) And and, and, all those kinds of things that um, is is quite interesting to... uh, to learn these things and you, you kind of encounter these these kind of extra extra stardom things that are different from the extra artistic or, mm-hmm. or background things about about artists or musicians that are just people kind of things that are, they're not the kind of um the I don't know, celebrity things that people think about. Right. The right. Mm-hmm. Star things. It's, it's more, I like those stories when I was writing yeah. my book, kind of stories that I would grab onto, you know, I, I love the stories about, um, about artists that are, that are the, the kind of take home who did the laundry kind of stories. Right. Yeah, maybe yeah. this needs to be my my ten uh, year project is to actually uh, you know write a book about they might be giants because there is not a biography of they might be giants. There, the closest thing to there being a book about they might be giants is uh, the thirty three and a third series. Um, there is a th- book on flood, and mm. um, I've had. Elizabeth Sandifer and Alex Reed, both the authors of that, have been on the show as well. But there is not like a book on They Might Be Giants. There was a documentary made about them in 2000 mm-hmm. uh, called Gigantic, but even that was over 20 years ago. That was halfway yeah. through their career at this point. This is their 40th year as a band. So, uh, I mean, you'll you know read about them in interviews and everything, and you know. But I want more of that stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think yeah. I think that's really worthwhile. Uh, I mean, people would buy it for sure. There's there's a demand. There's mm-hmm. all those fans, all those people doing websites or or you know, trading tapes. Um, and uh, if they're willing to talk to you, they're yeah. You know, who did the laundry? 
Yeah. That's important stuff. I know. People yeah. want to know. <laughs> I've been I've been I've been trying to get them on the show, but they have a thing about fan projects. I don't know. Maybe I seem like a crazy person, but uh, you know, if it was, you know, you've got a show about the accordion. That's one thing, you know, and uh, but for them to come on, I mean, I guess I think maybe they'd think like it's definitely, you know, helping me, as, you know, for my show more than maybe me projecting them to a new audience because people listening to my podcast are already fans of They Might Be Giants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but, uh, you know, I have been in talk with their, you know, I've talked with their management about other stuff. I've had Danny Weinkoff, their bass player on. I've had Marty Biller, their drummer on. I've had people that played horns with them, people that have done music videos for them, all these, you know, and, and these, you know people in their orbit yeah. um, but not the johns um but huh. anyway so uh the day was on that 1985 demo tape but th- there is one um record of it being played even before that uh july 10th of 1983 now there's not a recording of that but i mean obviously very early in the band's career it was 83 when they started calling themselves they might be giants while the johns were doing music uh the year before that as well, 83 was the first year they were calling themselves They Might Be Giants. But there is a list of songs that their old producer uh, had found that has this actually um, listed as Marvin Gaye as the name of the mm. song. But it is it, it is uh, this song. Um, yeah. So there's probably some un- undocumented instances of them playing that song. But according to the wiki, it's only been played 19 times, which is not very much for how no. long they've been around. Um, so then it made it as the, the closing track on their debut self-titled record, uh, the Pink Album, as referred to by fans. And what are your thoughts on... Well, as, as the accordion guy, what are your thoughts on um, the accordion part in this song? I mean, that's it's accordion and... Vocal. What are your What are your thoughts on the accordion uh, in this song? I mean, this is the one. It's it's kind of got that kind of organ thing going. Kind of gets that that sort of church organ thing, yeah. Yeah, it is almost kind of like a hymnal type uh, progression in the way it's just each chord just flows into another. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the 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 main thing that I struck me about this tune. Um, was was really was lyrically um when i was looking at it um was lyrically there's this bit on um, i'm just gonna steal that um i was reading about it originally from the wiki um from the interpretations wiki mm-hmm. this i read it weeks ago when we or months ago i think when we originally spoke about picking this song mm-hmm. and it struck stuck with me for for weeks if not months um and i have thought about this over and over you know it talks about phil oaks and marvin gay mm-hmm. and and there's actually a line that um i want to i just want to point to people point people at it's interpretation number two okay all right i'm looking <laughs> on at the it. interpretations of the day on the they might be wiki mm-hmm. and it talks about uh kurt vonnegut quote 
where he says, during the Vietnam War, every respectable artist in the country was against the war. It was like a laser beam. We were all aimed in the same direction. The power of this weapon turns out to be that of a custard pie dropped from a ladder six feet high. <laughs> Boy, yeah, he really has some faith in, uh, you know, the power and- of the arts, huh? <laughs> It it did. It really made me, you know, because like it. I mean, it, I was hearing this this song. I guess in um, 1990s, I was very politically active all through the night, um, and was just writing day before yesterday uh, an account of my experience at the WTO demonstrations in 2000 in Seattle, because that's where I was. Mm. Um, and uh, somebody was like, what good was that? You know, Seattle 1990 was the WTO Seattle today is Amazon. So what good was all these protests? And um, somebody else was commenting, wow, who did the soundtrack for that? <laughs> You know, as a demonstration, the soundtrack for this video about the WTO demonstration, Mm -hmm. um, there's a video, it's online, it's on YouTube called uh, This Is What Democracy Looks Like, and it's the best uh, video, it's the best documentary about the Seattle demonstrations. It's outstanding and um, definitely worth, worth seeing. I can send you a link. But um, someone there was more uh, concerned with what the music was. Well, it was just actual, one of the comments that yeah, they made. Sure, and it's some great music is in the documentary. But uh, somebody was like, "the the text is really small. I can't see who it was." But um, but it is a it is a really good point that um, you know if if you're listening to Rage Against the Machine. Or as somebody put it, raging the merchandising. Um, you know, you got your Che Guevara T-shirt. You're buying the records. You got your mm-hmm. you know, people don't know who Phil Oaks. I didn't know who Phil Oaks was, um, but he was the the Bob Dylan who didn't sell out, sort of. <laughs> or the <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, protest singer, uh, prominent in the '60s. Yeah, who uh, you know. He, wrote protest songs or he was the protest singer who didn't want to sell out and he didn't know how to sell out or something. Um, and then, you know, we have content warnings about self harm because he killed himself. Mm-hmm. Very sad story. Billo, Billy Bragg's got a song about him. Mm. I dreamed I saw Phil Oaks one day. Um, because his story is very sad. It was basically yeah. a story of mental illness, um, which could be written up as a tragedy about him, you know, not being able to find a way to express his political disenchantment, or it could just be that he had depression and was, you know, suffering from that. Um, yeah, it sounds like he had uh, bipolar disorder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, he didn't as, get proper help. As someone so. who experiences bipolar myself, I could identify with both of those things, both disenchantment and, you know, bipolar. So, um, 
I think that, uh, you know, with Marvin Gaye and all the other political musics that you hear, it's kind of a, you can have this political action music and you can have uh, political demonstrations and if you have big organizing and you have uh, social action inspiration with music and arts and all these things, um, I think it's really important to not have just the arts, to not think I'm going to wear a t-shirt and that's going to be right. the yeah. answer. That's not I'm the, just going to buy the album. Right. You know, I'm going to, you know, buy this record and I'm going to play that album and silently in my room and that's going to solve, you know, I'm going to buy the single and that's going to be, you know, or I'm going to buy a record, buy, buy a used album that was a fundraiser 25 years ago, you know. <laughs> right. Me listening to this is going to change the world. Yeah, it, it, yeah, so the lines in the song, yeah, so the, the Kurt Vonnegut quote, right? This is it is a it is an amazing quote. Yeah, the uh, the power of the weapon is that of a custard pie dropped from a step step ladder six feet high. So what this person was relating it to was the lines, uh, "Happiness bled from every street corner, and biplanes bond with fluffy pillows." So these things are it's like a violent image, you know, bleeding. Uh, happiness is bleeding. So you've got a happy thing, you've got a violent thing, and then fluffy pillows, pleasant, right? Biplanes bombing with fluffy pillows. Um, so I, I think that's a very uh, apt quote for that person to find um, and a very solid interpretation here because when you just listen to it, like on the surface, you're like, oh, this is, you know, it's just nonsense, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it's not usually you know that's not the case with they might be giants for the most case I mean that's what makes for such good podcasts is that there's always there's digging to do um, so yeah so I think you know you're right that's the relation there is that um, you know Marvin Gaye protested a lot against uh, you know civil injustices you know racial injustices um, and also also met a tragic end. Um, shot and killed by his uh, father. And I also realized that this song, if it was performed in 83, written in 83, right, it would have been very shortly before Marvin Gaye actually passed. He died April 1st of 1984. So this song was... So it was actually written before he was killed. Yeah. Yeah. So when when did Phil Oaks die? Uh, 76, 1976. Okay. So he was 35 years old. Marvin Gaye was, uh, 44 years old. So okay. both died young, uh, tragically. Both were involved with, uh, but you know, civil rights. But interesting that he mm-hmm. would have died after the song was written. Yeah. But yeah, like, like, um, any, any kind of mention of, artists like that that gets people to listen to them it sort of doesn't matter anything else anything else that anybody says you know get those get those names out there that's Mm -hmm. good yeah (laughs) yeah and yeah so the day marvin gay and phil oaks got married (laughs) 
<laughs> get, which, get everybody to go listen to the what's going on. And, yes. Uh, you know, stop the podcast. Go listen to that and get everybody to go listen to, uh, go listen to uh, Phil Oaks sing his, um, what's the record everybody should go listen to? Uh, the Draft Dodger Rag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find typical American boy from a typical American town I believe in God and Senator Dodd and I keep an old Castro down and when it came my time to serve I knew better death than red but when I got to my old draft board buddy this is what I said Sarge I'm only 18 I got a ruptured spleen and I always carry a purse I've got eyes like a bat and my feet are flat and my asthma's getting worse Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart, dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a-going to school, and I'm a-working in a defense plant. I got a dislocated disc and a racked-up back, I'm allergic to flowers and bugs. And when the bombshell hits, I get epileptic fits, and I'm addicted to a thousand drugs. I got the weakness woes, I can't touch my toes, I can hardly reach my knees. And if the enemy came close to me, oh, I'd probably start to sneeze. I'm only 18, got a ruptured spleen. They Might Be Giants actually covered a song by Phil Oaks just uh, a few years after they put out uh, the record. Uh, so I'll drop that in here as well. The song, the Phil Oaks song is called One More Parade. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. And so here's that. One, two, three, four, marching down the street. Rolling all the drums and the tramping of the feet General salutes and the mothers waving weed Here comes the big parade Don't be afraid, price is paid One more parade So young, so strong, so ready for the war So willing to go and die upon a foreign shore All march together, everybody looks the same so there is no one you can blame Don't be ashamed Light the flame One more parade 
And so They Might Be Giants were asked to do a song for a, a compilation for Electra Records' uh, 40th anniversary. It's called uh, Rubaiyat or something. I don't know what that word means. But anyway, they were <laughs> asked to do We Will Rock You. <laughs> and so then uh let's see flansberg said quote i don't think they were trying to be insulting but it felt to me like it would be hard not to see their intentions as having the faint taint of novelty thinking oh these guys are funny and small and don't really rock how clever would it be to give them that arena oriented song I mean, the tell is that we have so little in common with Queen. In almost every other case, it was it was like with um, a bluesy act covering a bluesy song, a folky did a folk song, etc. Also, a lot of the material covered was quite obscure with tons of room for interpretation. So, um, and then he continues, um, unless we could cook up an original fresh take on it, what would you do that wasn't just a shitty tag along? Um, but because it was also a suicide mission, being the original is so famous, so definitive, and so great, it wasn't hard to beg off. So, uh, in the end, Metallica ended up doing a Queen song on this compilation. <laughs> they did uh, Stone Cold Crazy, um, but they might be giant settled on one more parade. But this this compilation, you've got The Cure, Tracy Chapman, you've got Billy Braggs on here, Gypsy Kings, uh, great band, Sugar Cubes, Bjork's uh, early band, I mean, a lot of good stuff on here. Happy Mondays, um, 10,000 Maniacs, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstad. So the They Might Be Giants are among them here, and they do the song, One More Parade, uh, by Phil Oaks. So I will drop their cover in uh, right here. thoughts on their their cover it almost sounds to me like linnell's doing a phil oaks impression <laughs> yeah one more parade i think is um i'm trying to remember that's from a later phil oaks record when he was um he got signed to Elektra later in his career because early on his first couple of records are on gosh it's been a long time since i listened to him his first couple of records are on a, what's the name of the label? It's an indie label, it's like Barricade label or Barricade Records, something like that. But um, that's not it. Looks like, it's some folk, yeah. some folky label. Uh huh. Yeah, he later put stuff out on Electra, actually, in Columbia. Yeah, he had, um, let's see, Phil Oaks. A&M. He's been on a lot of labels here. 
labels. You know, look at him. It's been a long time since I looked at folks. His first couple of records were all his first two records. I'm saying that his 1964 record, All the News That's Fit to Sing, was on Electra. Yeah, maybe I was wrong. had some, some smaller stuff before that, maybe. No, that was, oh, it is on the record, Electra. Yeah, it was that one, and I was I ain't marching anymore. It was the two that I was thinking of, and you were all right. They are on Electra. I guess it was it was Broadside Magazine. He did some recordings with them beforehand, but... Mm. Um, so it's a, I was mistaken that he didn't record. Uh, they, they released some things of his afterwards or something. Um, uh, I think there's some stuff on Smithsonian Folkways have released some of the broadside recordings afterwards. But mm-hmm. I got that idea. Yeah, I'm but. sure Smithsonian Folkways is a good place to find some amazing accordion uh, music just in general. They, they have some they things, do. but... but um, but not that much. Um, a lot of the folk revival sort of didn't. The folk revival in the United States kind of abandoned the accordion. Um, sure. People, Haven't they put out like, some Zydeco stuff, though, Smithsonian? The, there was. Uh, I wrote about it in my book um, in the chapter called um, The Folk Revival, the Accordion. I got to get it right here. Let me skip ahead to the cha- chapter. The Folk Revival, The Accordion Betrayed, <laughs> chapter title. Because um, there were specific people, Alan Lomax, who was a mm-hmm. major figure in the American Folk Revival, hated the accordion. Oh, it's like it's perf- it personifies, you know, folk music in so many ways. I mean, in the folk musics of so many countries. I mean, I'm not telling you anything here. Uh, I mean... It's like a very definitive folk instrument. I mean, along with like, I don't know, the fiddle. <laughs> you know, it just he mm, just make any it's sense. Unclear exactly why some other figures in the folk revival, like um Frisch Strasswitz from our Huli Records, he was from Austria, and he came over and uh our released all this accordion music. Clifton Chenier from uh Zydeco released all this and tons of uh, um, uh, Norteño music uh, and um, Cononto music from down in Texas. And he was really into the accordion. And he talked to me about how uh, Alan Lomax would come to him and he would be like, why do you play all that accordion? I really don't like that accordion, Chris. (laughs) And, um, and Chris would kind of look at him like, Alan, have you been to Texas? <laughs> have you been to Louisiana? Have you? Been, I mean, come on. Come and, on, but, man. Just had some personal Alan, aversion to it, some sort of Alan, hang yeah, up Yeah, Alan it. Lomax had very strong opinions. And folks in Louisiana would talk about how um, it was good that Alan had very strong opinions because then people could go around and sort of fix them. (laughs) They could do the research to, you know, uh, make the, the, the 
have the research to to repair the damage or whatever from <laughs> the statements that Alan had made that were wrong. Um, <laughs> Everyone's entitled to had, their opinions, I guess, but in this case, that opinion is wrong. <laughs> and and one of the opinions that he had, you know, one of the things that he had said is that the accordion was was bad. <laughs> And and uh, I think that what had happened, I wish that I could actually interview about this because it would be quite interesting to know. Yeah. He traveled in Minnesota and Michigan in the 30s, and he did all these recordings, which is little known because they were never reissued. They were never issued during his lifetime. There were folks who did a reissue project just within the last 10 years. Um, and they did a tremendous book, which is this one, which is this fantastic, huge volume, The Folk Songs of Another America, mm. um, Field Recordings from the Upper Midwest, 1937 to 1946, which James P. Leary did along with a huge crew of grad students um and it's got five cds worth of choice choice recordings but made by alan lomax and two women who um were all field recordists in the upper midwest in um in the 1930s and 40s wow. and they around all over in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and they made all these recordings, thousands of recordings. Alan Lomax said it was the richest uh, field recording area he had ever been to. Hmm. You know, it was mind-boggling to him. It was great fun to write about that in, in the book. I just sort of summarized what James Leary and other people had written um, very exciting, fun to write about that in the folk music chapter put to my book was actually some of the most fun that I had writing. Um, and uh, they just had this tremendous richness to write, uh, to gather, um, and then they never released any of it during their mm -hmm. lifetime. And the hmm. problem was that it was in 13 or 14 different languages, and okay. it was just a mess. Hmm. Uh, because all these immigrants coming together in all these different ways, and it was a scrambled mess, and they couldn't put it together, they couldn't release it, it wasn't a unified, you know, it wasn't American, and it wasn't, hmm. you know, who, who is making this music? It is not a folk, a unified, pure anything. Yeah, that's a weird way to look at it. I mean, and, um, you know, we, we want a pure, uh, 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 you know, we want to preserve something yeah. is what idea of folk preservation. Hmm. And there's nothing to preserve out of this thing. Yeah, that's a pretty one, narrow way to look at it. Wow. Or it was just hard because it was in 13 languages sure. and they 
had to transcribe everything, that translate everything. And who were they going to sell it to? Because yeah. it was these other languages. And it took, you know, James Leary and, and a slew of grad students years and years to put this book project together, you know, and who's going to buy it. Um, and, and so what happened is Alan Lomax and the other two folks were never able to release it. The only thing that was ever released from this was one of the women was able to release a few of the Lumberjack songs, but only the ones in English. Hmm. Lomax fled the country during the McCarthy era and went to Europe. In Europe, he encountered all these people who were really upset that the accordion was taking over for the uh, traditional fiddle tunes and hmm. of taking over space where the fiddles and the bagpipes was had occupied. Hmm. And the accordions at the time were less capable of playing some of the tunes that the fiddles and bagpipes played because you couldn't tune the accordions to all the different modes that the fiddles and bagpipes played. So they were losing some of the repertoire that the fiddles and the bagpipes played. Huh. And so some of the folk, folk preservationists were pretty upset about the accordions over there. And So is that uh, where his hang-up came from then? I theorize, without anything else to base it on, except for one of the lines from this Italian folk music collection that's on there where Alan Lomax goes off on the accordion talking about how it is a pestiferous instrument. <laughs> Which I want to put on a t-shirt, but I yeah, quote yeah. it in my book. Yeah, you got to reclaim that. Pestiferous there. instrument. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and so my theory is he just took that prejudice from Europe and brought it back to the United States. And so you end up with a situation in the United States where some of the prejudices like that led to the particular situation in the United States that is, I think, a real... I want to say a, a historical injustice is one of the things that happened in the United States in the 1960s in particular, really earlier than that in the 1950s and the 1960s was the chance and a little later is there was the last opportunity to preserve the English speaking African-American accordion tradition where Lead Belly and other African-American accordionists who were English language speakers who all over the South represented a tradition of uh, black accordion players that went back to uh, the time of pre-emancipation who played accordion at square dances along with fiddle players in the black string bands and they played accordion at square dances, and Lead Belly played accordion square dance songs on, he made five recordings of square dance songs playing accordion. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think a lot oh. of people wouldn't even know that he's an accordionist. I'm sure, I just brought it up in front of me. The, the picture on Lead Belly's Wikipedia page is he's playing the accordion. And there, he made... Again, me with numbers, I'm going to say 500. He made hundreds of uh, guitar recordings mm -hmm. 
on the 12 string guitar that he picked up from a Mexican guy on the border in Mexico. So his traditional 12 string guitar that he basically grabbed from a Mexican guy. So that is a totally made up tradition. There is no tradition of <laughs> black 12 string guitar players. Yeah. Um, it, you know, um, and that is the the tradition that everyone recorded him playing. There is this tradition he learned as a nine-year-old in 1909. His first instrument was an accordion. He played um, on these square dances, and nobody ever sat down and interviewed him about his first instrument that yeah. he played at these square dances. Hmm. And he sat down and said, could you play us a set of what it sounded like when you played this instrument and what it sounded like? Could you do like a set of square dances for us? Um, and nobody did the research. And um, there's interviews where people spoke with, I did it. There's a chapter in my book, African-Americans, played accordion before they played the blues because this tradition of black accordion um, predates the the development of the blues and the blues guitar and then was supplanted by the blues when the blues came along you couldn't play blues scales on the simple accordions that existed with 10 right. buttons on the diatonics yeah didn't include the blue scales. Right. So as the square dances fell from popularity, the blues guitars and blues pianos came along and jazz developed and this accordion tradition fell away. So then, this relates to the Alan Lomax and people in the folk revival, you ended up with this older black accordion tradition these folk revivalists came along and they all wanted these old traditions. They found these older players. If they saw an old guy playing accordion and an old guy playing guitar, they ignored the old guy playing accordion mm -hmm. and they grabbed the old guy playing guitar. And by doing so, they were ignoring the older tradition. And, and, as a result, the African-American accordion tradition died in about 1980, was the last recording that a guy, Kip Lornell, made the last recordings of African-American accordionists. And yeah. as far as we know, there were no survivors after that. So, I wanted to that, drop in uh, for people here that uh, haven't heard Lead Belly play the accordion, which is most of us. Thank you. 
Back to uh, Team BG here. Yeah, I was just looking at the, the chord progression again real quick. It's a very accordion-friendly chord progression. Now, I, it's hard to say who wrote this song, you know, if necessarily John Flansburg singing it, if he's the one that wrote it. It's a very uh, guitar-friendly key uh, with the primary chords just being E, A, and B. But that also happens to be a very nice accordion key um, uh, for the... Bass notes, and you've got some some little walking parts, but prim- primarily it's just E A E B, and so you've got like the first half of the song. It sounds like like what you're saying. It sounds like he's playing all on the right hand um, e. chords on the right hand, and then the second time through, as they ham it up more, you can hear the bass keys uh, coming in there. You know, it gets thicker. Um, maybe he changes his you know the reed setting on his accordion. Um, but a, a very, uh, if, if someone picks up, there are a lot of people that pick up the accordion because of They Might Be Giants, and, uh, this would be a good song to start learning your way around the bass keys, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you, if you want to learn, you know, the more traditional way, <laughs> uh, with the, uh, bass keys doing, you know, it's all, it's doing E, E bass and E major, a bass, A major. This would be a good song to, uh, you know, get started. A slower tempo. Yeah. Nice uh, one, four, five uh, chord progression. So it's very yeah. accordion friendly uh, and guitar friendly uh, song, though no guitar on the song. Um, and okay, so like I said earlier, they've only played this maybe 19 times. Um, could have been, you know, if it was played as early as 83, it seems like maybe it should have been played somewhere in there. Cause all we, all we have in the, the noted performances, it goes from 83 to 88, which surely if it was played in 83, surely it popped up somewhere in there too. But nevertheless, not a ton of performances. Um, and one that I, uh, sent to you was their third performance ever of the song, which was September 28th of 1988 and I will put that in right here. This is our last song before the big rock epoch known as the They Might Be Giants show. So this is Count Drink and this is a lot saying goodbye. And um, stay tuned for They Might Be Giants. They'll be here in about 10 or 15 minutes. So this song is off off They Might Be Giants first album and it's called This is the one where I don't know. He's he's Flansburg is making up something about um, how about how they're not. They might be giants. He's like, this is our last song uh, before they might be giants take the stage. 
And here's a song that's on They Might Be Giants' first album. I don't know if the crowd's all laughing at. I'm not sure what his whole uh, what the the shtick was there, but like they were their own opening band or something like that. Um, yeah, and and even though the song was only had only been out on record proper for two years, there's like you can hear people singing along and stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty good uh, performance there. Now the next one we've got. Uh, jumping all the way to 2005, uh, New Year's Eve of 2005 into 2006, um, in a venue called North Six in New York City. Uh, this one's notable because you're going to hear the full band playing on it. And he excused the accordion in uh, favor of the organ for this particular performance. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to drop that one in here. the effect on this where it does sound real you know church churchy you were talking about how you know the the accordion style and the song kind of has that and this gives it even more of a church feel it sounds kind of like um almost like funeral funeral music it's got that straight tone and then the full band kicks in this is when marty beller he would have been pretty new to the band then you know you get that prom 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 Boom, and then the whole band hits, and he changes the the organ tone to get this big vibrato in it, um, kind of that more of like a, going from like more of a funeral tune to like big gospel number, and um, the electric guitar starts swelling in at that point. Well, what did you well, what did you think of that version? So much different than uh, than the record. It becomes it's sort of a. a it's kind of like camp gospel <laughs> instead of gospel camp. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> there we go. That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. And then let's see for a more modern performance. Um, so they haven't played it since 2015, but the recording I'm going to play here is 2013. Um, which was a, uh, an officially released live version uh, on an album called First Album Live, which is a, just a digital live-only album them playing mm. uh, the entire first album. So I will put that in uh, here. Uh, so this is the uh, last song from our, uh, our first album that we'll be performing tonight. Uh, this 
1986 was a uh, song from the future. I can sing in any key, John. Let's try it. The day Marvin Gaye and Phil Oaks got married, the trees all waved their giant arms and happiness fled from every and by planes bomb with fluffy pill. The day Marvin Gaye and Phil's got married, the trees Okay, he said, this song in 1986 was a song from the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what you'd take that to mean, because at that point, both of these men were already dead. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's got that kind of protest song feel, but in uh, 86, I don't know. They're talking about a future war, They're predicting, I don't know. The Gulf War? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. This, this, uh, these are the funniest things. I'm actually seeing them on uh, Sunday. I'm seeing them in a few oh, days nice. in Indianapolis. In Indianapolis? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. It's it's strange to be... Um, I mean, it's the modern world where we're online and connecting with people all over the world and watching responses with people like bands or things are happening and people are touring and you're kind of becoming aware of where people are as a band is touring. Like, oh, I'm going to see so-and-so. And just, oh, you must be there. Yeah. I know. It's, you're not quite aware of where people are geographically, except when they say, oh, I'm here. Oh, that means they're there and you must be too. Right. Yeah. It's it's crazy how much how much this podcast has uh, sp- spread my my you know f- friends within the fandom you know worldwide. I mean, I've had tons of people from Europe and um, Australia on the show, um, especially. And I just found a guy in Argentina who's a they might be Giants fan. I'm like, I haven't had anyone from South America on this show. Nice. I, I just found this guy. Um, and he's like, English is my first language. I'm like, that's cool. You know, we'll that's take awesome. it slow. It's all good. Yeah. We're, we're still fishing for a, um, we haven't had a recording of an accordion in Antarctica yet. <laughs> Come on. Some scientists working down there. Yeah, they brought one We've along. got photos and. Really? We've got videos. Um, but I've spoken, I've communicated with people in Antarctica but I haven't got any audio yet for some reason. I not managed to make a connection there that gets me audio. We've got Arctic audio, I think. <laughs> but not Antarctic. <laughs> got the video of the Arctic uh, walruses playing. <laughs> I don't know if those folks are north of the Arctic Circle. 
But anyways. <laughs> but no Antarctic accordion yet. But Come on. There's got to uh, be some. Those scientists, you know, these nerdy types, you know, we flocked to accordion. There was you know, a, nerdy there was a concertina on the way to Shackleton's trip to Antarctica, but... No recordings yet. It's very disappointing to me, those slackers. <laughs> well, you heard it here, people. Those are all, all you listeners in Antarctica. Get to it. Send me, send me <laughs> a care of accordionnoir.org and give me a penguin picture with your accordion, and I will send you a copy of my Accordion Revolution book, which I believe mentions Shackleton's uh concertina player very cool i think very cool <laughs> i don't know and i'll send you an inscription there you go <laughs> and we are on to the cover section of this episode which is very short at the moment now i scoured the web for covers of the day now it doesn't help the title of the song definitely doesn't help you know the day <laughs> because the song it comes up in so many that phrase in the middle of longer titles and stuff like that and like tmbg the day cover uh, they might be giants the day cover nothing but luckily i've got this uh this band of folks called the tmbp covers crew and they are informed of my recording schedule ahead of time um, before I talk to my guests and Joel Shaughnessy, who is the newest member of the covers crew, he's making his presence known. He had one on the uh, last episode as well. Uh, he sent us what, as far as I can tell, is the only cover of this song. And well I'm going to put that in right here. The day. did you think of joel's take on the day we're going synth heavy here i'm i'm impressed <laughs> yep joel uh just uh, recorded Go this about a week ago yeah i love it i mean it's got this cool groove to it i mean that is completely absent in the original the original is like i mean i'm sure they didn't record it to you know a click track or anything it's very kind of swelling and swaying by design 
But for him to just take these synths that it gives it like a whole other kind of life. And it's yeah. very, very creative and uh, makes it catchy, like it's even catchier than the original. It gives it like hooks as to what right. is this kind of like crooning bellow of flames in the original. It sounds like a pop song. Yeah. I love it. So thank you, Joel, for sending that in. Continue sending them in, man. You know, he's uh, he just joined the covers crew. He's already two for two. He's given me songs for both episodes that I've recorded uh, since he joined the covers crew. And we are to the point in the episode now where uh, we must score this song. Now, for you not being a uh, super fan of the band makes it definitely a little different. The, the scoring for this, so you're not scoring it against you know, your favorite other accordion artists of all time or whatever. This is just within, um, like, relation to other They Might Be Giants songs. So I don't know if you've got, you know, how many of their songs you're super uh, familiar with that you would have maybe one would be, like, a perfect 10 for you um, to relate to. But we're scoring 0 to 10. And if you need decimals, you know, something, point something, um, what would you score the day? by They Might Be Giants. Wow. As you say, this is a very challenging... I'm not very good with numbers. So... (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm not very good with numbers, so I want to think of something funny, and I can't think of anything funny right now. (laughs) I give it a six, six, six. <laughs> it's the devil's music. This accordion. It's the devil's plaything. Uh, <laughs> well, just, just. I mean, how much did you like it as a song? And you can rate it as high or as low as you want. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I like the accordion in this song. I think I could dance to it. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Alrighty. Yeah, this song is, you know, it, it makes for a good closer on the uh, first album. Um, you know, that typical, you know, the uh, the ballad or like the acoustic number is the closing song to, you know, this is like their version of that, you know, an accordion only uh, song to close out the album. Um, that said, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, a minor work within their uh, catalog. You can rate songs on the wiki now. There's there's 910 uh, songs on the wiki. <laughs> this is at number 824. Ouch! That is incredibly low. That is not a very high rating. No. So among the accordion songs, though. Oh well, there's there's plenty that are a ton higher. Let's see. Did I close that tab? No. Uh. Yeah, songs that feature the accordion. I mean, we've got, you know, the song Dr. Worm. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard that one. I think it, the accordion is featured very prominently in that music video. I think Dr. You'd like Worm that would one. certainly be high on the list. If it, yes, that, Dr. That Worm is be, very high. It is. Certainly, like, if, if we did a rating of just the accordion songs, that would be, I think, what uh, the separate rating system that I would be interested in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's my favorite They Might Be Giant song of all of them. On the wiki, it's at six. And the day is at 824. 
I think that the Marvin Gaye and Phil Oaks reference is is uh, is a is a winner for me, um, and the accordion, sure. of course, is a winner. Those are both memorable aspects, um, mm-hmm. and there's some other things in there that are good, um, and and it's uh, it's a winner because it is a good excuse for you to invite me onto the show. <laughs> yeah. And very fun to 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 talk about and explore. So yeah, um, definitely. I mean, we 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 squeezed a lot out of this song that really just has one verse that they sing twice. Uh, I think I'm gonna have to go <laughs> a little. A little uh, I'm definitely appreciating the song much more than I maybe have ever same. noticed it before. Same. I I think I'm going six point five though, but I definitely do. You know, the whole talk about the Kurt Vonnegut quote and just the idea of this song as a like the like the wimpiest protest song ever or something where it's like we're, we're bombing with pillows, right? There's just these, you know, these conflicting uh, images here um, kind of perhaps pointing out a similar thing that Vonnegut was pointing out. Definitely, you know, for how few words are in this song, I think what are in there is really interesting and we found a lot to talk about. There's a, um, there's another song that this, uh, that related to that, that Vonnegut quote that occurs to me, there's a, uh, Eugene Chadbourne is a folk singer, kind of singer, songwriter guy, um, who's got a, a tune called, um, government's love anti-war songs. Uh-huh. Um, one of the first songs I ever learned to play on guitar, uh, by myself, um, which is just a vicious cynical tune, but also really kind of, educational in that same way governments love anti-war songs uh they just love to what is it governments love anti-war songs it just serves to remind them there's a war <laughs> well hey guess what I'll eugene chadborn copy of that one yes uh, it's a it's a winner oh governments just love anti-war songs let's just sing them loud We'll sing along, yeah. Governments love anti-war songs. It just reminds them in a musical kind of way. Like there's a war. Department of Defense loves protest songs. They put them on the Muzak system. They love the sarcastic lyrics. Listen for the rhymes of wisdom. The louder the volume, the better. Just makes them feel stronger to hear the voices that would be still if their weapons and wars were no longer. Well, get this. Eugene Chadbourne has made a guest appearance on a They Might Be Giants song. Yeah? Yep. On this album, uh, the, the song Absolutely Bill's Mood, he, the beginning of it is this crazy acoustic guitar solo played over the phone. He, <laughs> They called him, he played the guitar over the phone, and that is the introduction uh, and kind of sampled uh, throughout the song, the name of yeah. the giant song, Absolutely Bill's Moon. Um, yeah. Yeah. All good things can be related back to they might be Eugene fans. is something um, very interesting, stylish, stylist, and all this stuff, but also a very, very talented um, and interesting songwriter. And uh, um, 
and as far as, far as like a, a kind of a biting lyricist when he gets going there it's like that song is like really yeah wow there's a lot <laughs> going on as far as just a educational message wow yeah so uh, awesome. to wrap things up, the, the the plug section, we've talked about your book quite a bit. People should go and uh, uh, grab yourself a copy of Accordion Revolution, uh, where fine books are sold, and uh, your radio show. And that's still it's, – so it's it's on a Wednesdays, right? But can people listen to it like at any time streaming? Can it be found like after the – Yeah, fact? our show, it's available on all the podcast places, Accordion Noir okay. – or you can go to our own website, which if you go to accordionnoir.org, that will take you to our podcast site. My book is available if you search for accordionrevolution.com. That will take you again to sources for my book, and it is available on all the book availability places. So there thank you, you very having me on here yeah thanks for coming on that's uh it's it's super cool to have all sorts of of different folks you know it seems like i'd like to sometimes not you know to talk to someone who's not as much of a dork about they might be giants as i am someone who's coming at it from another you know specialty another angle um and it's it's rare that i get to talk to people that are so fluent in accordion talk, you know, so being able to uh, get into that uh, nitty gritty uh, was super fun. So I appreciate you coming on, Bruce. Thanks so much. Yeah.